welcome to episode 174 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I would like to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Georgie Watson, Claire McMillan, Evie Killjoy, Andrea Farley, Dan Epstein, Mel Howley, Elizabeth Pryor, Hells, Faye Miles, Julie T, Bree Robertson, Rachel Hitt, Sandra Turan, T.A. Nell Hansens, Hannah Barton, Jenna Heath, Samantha Campbell White, Rachel Henry, and Alex Vilk. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And I have a promo for you this week. Our promo is for the Whispering Woods podcast. The Whispering Woods is a podcast devoted to the darker side of life. Join Sarah and Toby as every Sunday they share true, scary stories of the paranormal from ancient folklore to modern hauntings. Using immersive audio, The Whispering Woods transports listeners to another time or even realm. Join them as they explore the unimaginable and terrifying, relaying tales of the supernatural from poltergeists to cryptids, the hat man to skinwalkers. So Sarah is a very lovely listener And she does the Whispering Woods podcast with her son, Toby, who is 12 years old and equally as lovely. And if you're looking for a spooky podcast in general, obviously the Whispering Woods is a go to. But if you're looking for one that you can listen to with the younger people in your life, then this is definitely one to try out. I'm going to play the promo. As always, if you like it, make sure that you go and give them a listen, subscribe to their podcast. So let's hear it. Hello and welcome to the Whispering Woods podcast. I'm Sarah, and this is my 12-year-old son, Toby. I've had that with sleep paralysis. What, a goblin? Nah, it's just a creature. Okay, but... <laughs> that was a bit of a bad stutter. Sometimes I want to hug him. Sometimes I want to scream at him. But mostly, I just want to scare him stupid. The legend of the Navajo skinwalker. Because that's the kind of mum I am. Join us every Sunday as I tell true tales of the paranormal in an attempt to terrify my youngest child. This type of being operates by an entirely different set of rules. Will it work? Subscribe and find out wherever you get your podcasts. And our film review this week. Our film review is Smile. Smile was released in 2022. It has 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb and 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. After witnessing a traumatic incident, Dr. Cotter starts experiencing frightening occurrences that she can't explain. As an overwhelming terror begins taking over her life, she must confront her troubling past to escape her horrifying new reality. I'm going to admit that I did not expect much from this film at all. I thought it was way too hyped. I thought it would end up disappointing, as often happens with modern day Hollywoodized horror films. You end up with this like really great ad campaign and then you go see the film and you think, oh, actually, this is a bit disappointing. But props to the marketing team who worked on this film. If you haven't seen the marketing for this film, it was so impressive. So they did things like they put actors at like prominent football games and stuff. And they had the actors just stand with this chin down 
maintaining eye contact, really scary smile for the entirety of like football games and stuff. And obviously then they'd be picked up by the um, the cameras at the football games and they had smile, I think, on their T-shirts. Really good marketing, went viral on TikTok, which is kind of what you need these days. So I was impressed with that side of it. But I did think this isn't going to be very good. I went to see this film in the cinema. I went with Sinead from The Poisoner's Cabinet. Uh, Just as an FYI, there was a fight in the cinema while we were watching it. Loved it. I loved the drama. If anything, this film gets five stars for the fact there was a fight in, in the actual screen as we were watching the film. It was not a very aggressive or violent fight, but it was a fight nonetheless. And there was a group of teenagers that were at the film like a whole row of teenagers I say teenagers they're probably like late teens early 20s university students I'd imagine and they were all watching the film and they were kind of like chitter chattering through it and being really dramatic when when jump scares came up and stuff and that never really bothers me in a horror film because I do think there are horror films that are meant to be enjoyed with a group of friends on a Friday night and this film felt like one of those films I could imagine myself being a teenager and going to see that film with my friends and skitting and laughing and being really giddy but also finding it equally horrific and that's the kind of film that this is it's a group watch I think the score to this film was incredible the soundscape was so unsettling and it really added to the overall feelings of unease like I was jittery with the soundscape it was making me not feel very good and I guess before we go any further with this film it 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 comes with crazy trigger warnings it is basically a film that is about suicide and it's about people taking their own lives in really violent and I'm going to say aggressive aggressive isn't the word that I'm looking for just really violent ways so if you're somebody who's been impacted by suicide I would not recommend going to see this film I can imagine that it is very triggering for people who have experienced suicide or witnessed to suicide or had somebody in their family take their own life yeah just big old warnings for this film and for the rest of this film review because I will be talking about suicide and I will be mentioning suicide so the opening sequence of this film so you have Dr. Cotter who is this uh, psychiatrist or psychologist psychiatrist I think and she meets this patient who has witnessed a really traumatic event this patient has witnessed a person take their own life really violently with a hammer and she is now convinced that she is being stalked by something and that opening sequence where they are in the room Dr. Cotter is assessing this girl absolutely had me on the on the edge of my seat it was scary as shit props to the girl the actor who played the patient because she was good not only was she good but she was convincing and she scared me she scared me and there was no cgi with her there was nothing done to make her appearance like more terrifying than it already was she was just a normal looking girl i use normal in inverted commas you know what i mean she was just a standard looking girl and she acted her socks off in that sequence and that starts then this horrific chain of events And I guess if you're a fan of films like It Follows or The Ring, 
you will be a fan of this film. So it is a film that is all about basically being cursed. It's witnessing something traumatic and having that trauma follow you. That was that was my likes column, by the way, if, if anybody was not following along. That was my likes. Never said it at the beginning, but those are my likes. And now on to my dislikes. This film is full to the brim, full to the gills of jump scares. And jump scares, they just aren't my vibe. They aren't my vibe. Yes, they were very effective jump scares in that there was a lot of jumping. But I do find them obnoxious when they become overused in a film. And actually, this film really relied on jump scares for a marketing campaign that was all centered around the uncanny valley of people sort of smiling scarily they used more obnoxious jump scares in this film than the impact of the smiling which really annoyed me because I thought there's so much you can do with that smile that absolutely terrifying grin that is frozen on somebody's face there's so much more you could do with that than just relying on jump scare after jump scare after jump scare and the thing about the smile being barely used as well is that actually it was only effective with some of the actors that they used it with so like I said the girl at the beginning the patient who starts it all she is brilliant she was terrifying her smile was chilling but actually in some of the actors when they were doing the smile and it kind of you know obviously forewarned that something bad is about to happen I was I didn't find them particularly scary they didn't make me feel uneasy or on edge there had to have been something more they could have done to utilize that smile and make it more disturbing at least in the instances of some of the actors and I did see when I posted this on Instagram I saw Kev from we need to talk about ghosts made a comment about the entity that is in this film and I really agreed with his comment so he said that you know the film he said positive things about the film and then he said that he really disliked the entity and I was so disappointed in what the entity eventually ended up being and looking like because I felt like it ruined it ruined the film it fell into that trap that I talk about all the time of having to have a visual representation on the screen of whatever it is you're trying to portray as a monster and I just don't think sometimes it's necessary or I think all we need is a fleeting glimpse having it on the screen for too long actually takes away how effective it is and I thought that really let that part of the film down and my final thought my final dislike about this film I understand that this film is a conversation about trauma and huge amounts of horror films at the moment are leaning into the psychological impact of childhood trauma, of traumatic incidents, and using horror as a way to explore those incidents. So if you take Hereditary, for example, I don't know if that film did this well. There is no real subtlety in how they explore this. Um, I felt like they really went ham on the this film this horror film is about trauma and it is about the horrible effects of suicide and I think there were points when the actual concept of trauma as a real life horror kind of became trivialized because they leaned so much into jump scares and also leaned really heavily into these really gory enactments of people taking their own lives 
and people taking their own lives in as violent ways as possible. And I know gore is completely subjective. It's not my thing. I don't like it. I don't like watching gore on screen. So something about it made it feel like it was almost so obviously trying to hit you on the head with the idea that this is a movie about the horror of trauma that it almost became like satirical or even just a bit silly at times. But here's the thing. I don't want to over-intellectualise it. Did I freak out when I came home after watching this film? Yeah, I was really freaked for the first time in a long time. Went to the cinema to watch it, came home, my house was dark. I was suddenly very aware that I was on my own in the house. I was I was freaked. I was freaked after watching it. Is it a jump scare film? Yes, but it's effective jump scares. Is it worth a watch? Yeah, I think so. If you can manage those trigger warnings, I absolutely think so. I'm going to give it a three out of five. There was bits of it I really didn't like. There were elements of it that I thought were really just way too obvious. Too much reliance on jump scares and gore. But it was an entertaining watch. So it's a three out of five from me. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, our story this week is based all around two really interesting theatre ghost stories that I came across and really loved. So the wonderful Nick from The Poisoner's Cabinet bought me a book called Stage Ghosts and Haunted Theatres by Nick Bromley and it's a really good book, would highly recommend it, really funny and well written and in that book there were a couple of really interesting stories that I wanted to dive into today with you guys and there is a particular reason why theatre is having a pretty big theme in my life at the moment, It's it's having a moment in my life so let's just crack on and get straight into the story. By the time this episode airs, I will have just finished producing a run of Macbeth. Now, I've spoken about Macbeth before, but in case you missed it, let's do a really brief recap of what is considered to be a play that is wrought with bad luck and intense theatre superstition. There are lots of theories as to why Macbeth is considered to be an unlucky play. Many theatre folk still to this day refuse to say the word Macbeth when referring to the play itself and instead use the term the Scottish play instead. Theatre folk will generally have different stories as to why the play is cursed but according to study.com these are the main reasons as to why the play has such a bad name. Shakespeare intended to flatter King James I with his portrayal of him in the play. However, James I did not like the play at all and the bloodshed and depictions of violence made him so unhappy that he ordered the play to be banned. The play was rewritten in a less violent tone and performed in 1703. But the worst storm in English history broke out during the run of the play. Several towns and cities were destroyed and 500 sailors were killed. The original text of the play was restored before the play was performed again. In 1849, thousands of New Yorkers were outside of the Astor Palace Opera to protest the actor William Charles McCready. The mayor called the militia on the protesters, causing the protest to turn into a riot. 22 people were killed and hundreds were injured. Abraham Lincoln read passages regarding Duncan's assassination to his friends a week before he himself was assassinated. In 1882, one of the actors accidentally stabbed another actor in the chest on the closing night of a production. 
the actor did not die, but he was significantly injured. In 1928, a set fell down on the actors at the Royal Court Theatre during a rehearsal, seriously injuring some of the cast. The weekend before opening day, a fire broke out in the dressing room. In 1937, an absolute disastrous situation overcame the cast preparing for the play at the Old Vic. The director and one of the actors were in a car accident on the way to the theatre. The dog belonging to the founder of the Old Vic, Lillian Bayliss, was hit by a car a few days after this car accident. Laurence Olivier, the actor cast to play Macbeth, lost his voice due to a cold just before opening night, resulting in the play being postponed. A 25-pound stage weight fell and narrowly missed Olivier, and Bayliss died of a heart attack right before the final rehearsal for the show. In 1947, an actor was stabbed in the final sword fight of the play and died from the resulting wounds. In 1970, the actor playing Macbeth died from heart failure during Act 2 of the play. Most recently, in 1998, Alec Baldwin sliced open the hand of another actor during production. It's probably accurate to say that Macbeth is one of the world's most performed plays. And as a result of that, statistically, the number of negative incidents associated with it are just bound to be higher. That doesn't stop the belief that the play is just simply unlucky, however. There are even some who believe that Shakespeare used real spells in the original production and the play was cursed by a coven of witches. Whatever you believe, or whatever theatre folk believe, superstitions are still rife within the performance industry. And it really is little wonder why. Having just finished my first show as a producer, which was performed in a 700-year-old building, with an admittedly disappointing lack of ghost stories, I thought it was best to celebrate. And to celebrate the end of the show, I thought it fitting to delve one last time into two great theatre ghost stories. Brighton is a busy and bustling seaside town on the south coast of England. And on the 6th of June 1807, the Theatre Royal on New Street opened its doors for the very first time. Its popularity fluctuated with the tastes of its middle class audience and it changed hands multiple times. In 1866, the building was purchased by Henry John Nye Chart, who made the decision to refurbish the building, to modernise it and make it bigger, to accommodate for larger audiences. And while he was successful in updating and improving the theatre, it was his subsequent widow, Mrs Ellen Elizabeth Nye Chart, who really turned the theatre into a roaring success. She just fundamentally understood her audience, and as a result, she booked shows that brought the punters in. She introduced an annual pantomime, which for non-UK and Ireland listeners is a musical comedy adaptation of a fairy tale that is traditionally staged around Christmas time. And she also introduced a flying matinee, which consisted of loading up an entire cast, crew and set from a London West End production onto a train, getting them to Brighton and on the stage within hours and then reloading and getting them back to London for the evening performance. She was nothing if not revolutionary in the realm of theatre bookings. Not only this, but she was a firm set in her belief that theatre should be accessible to all and enjoyed by all, 
and would put on special free performances of shows for the staff and residents of the local workhouses. It seemed that Mrs. Ellen Elizabeth Nye Chart was somewhat of a powerhouse and an all-round good egg. And of course, after her sudden death in 1892, it seems that she never truly left the Theatre Royal. The stories of owners and directors haunting their theatres after they die are ten a penny, and it's difficult to understand why this is. Is it because they lived and breathed theatre, and it was their home and they just can't leave? Or is it simply checking in to see how their life's work is faring up as time passes? Whatever it is, Ellen Nye Chart is one of the most frequently seen apparitions in the Theatre Royal. She appears as the Lady in Grey and can be seen rocking chairs back and forth as though checking their stability. She appears bustling down corridors and recently was spotted in the Royal Box sitting and watching a performance and so vivid was this apparition that a man literally inquired at the box office as to whether there was a woman in the Royal Box. He had looked up and seen her and was shocked by what he saw and the next second she had disappeared. The box, tickets, they weren't sold that night and it was locked. The Theatre Royal is not only home to the ghost of the Grey Lady, but it is also home to the ghost of a little girl who runs through the corridors backstage, giggling and hiding among the costumes. And while the idea of a small child inexplicably spending the afterlife terrifying actors is absolutely horrific, there is a beauty in the idea that Mrs. Ellen Elizabeth Nye Chart holds her theatre in such high esteem that she still comes back to make sure that all is in order. In fact, there is a plaque in the foyer in her honour that reads, Many of us will, on the reoccurrence of your invitation, be in the world of shadows. But when we meet at the last great transformation scene, the things which you have done for the poor and the friendless will be written in letters of gold above your head. In the beginning of this story, I spoke about the curse of Macbeth and how productions are said to be plagued with misfortune. But the Scottish play is not the only play rumoured to have been cursed. Nick Bromley outlines a strange experience in his book Stage Ghosts and Haunted Theatres where a series of bizarre events marred what should have been a straightforward production. It was 2009, and the play was called Prick Up Your Ears, a story about Joe Orton and his ill-fated relationship with Kenneth Hallowell. Orton was a playwright who wrote dark comedies and who was murdered by Hallowell, who bludgeoned him to death with a hammer. Hallowell went on to overdose and subsequently died. The play centred around their relationship and the final days of their relationship and it had three actors. The cast and crew worked with the friends and family of Joe Orton and Kenneth Hallowell in order to create a piece that truly reflected their lives and their deaths. And in the beginning, the events were small, seemingly insignificant. But hindsight is a powerful tool. And upon later reflection, the cast wondered if perhaps there was more to these incidents after all. Were they a warning? Or a sign of things yet to come? It started with a record sleeve. 
a record called Pal Joey had been ripped open. Fine. Nothing to be concerned about. Frustrating that no one had reported it, but these things happen. An ill-timed hammer blow sent an actor to hospital. And then the record player broke. A prop lamp broke and another one. And blood packs burst before their cues. Annoying, yes, but these things happen. The play was set in an apartment and the walls and ceiling were rigged to close in throughout the play to give a sense of intense claustrophobia. The rigging of the ceiling malfunctioned, causing it to shoot upwards and damage the rig. The walls would jam and there seemed to be no conceivable reason for these events. The rigs were functioning fine, the build was good and the speed at which the walls and ceiling should move were programmed correctly every single time. What started as a joke about the play being cursed began to feel oddly real. And like I mentioned before, when doing a run of a show, of course things go wrong. Props fail, things break, people get injured. These things happen. But this felt different, more measured. An electrician was badly injured when he received an electric shock and was blown backwards into the air. One night a lump of set came loose and crashed to the ground, narrowly missing a member of cast and crew. And the show? Oh, the show was wrought with mishaps. Handles fell off doors, the communication cans failed so the crew could not communicate during the show. The reel-to-reel tape recorder began to malfunction and strange hisses, pops and groans were heard on the stage. The whole thing felt off. It was a weird, inexplicable feeling, and when the actors explained the constant mishaps, people would shrug and say, but of course, these things happen. But these things weren't just happening. And the cast began to have experiences that seemed to confirm it. Joe Orton was brutally bludgeoned to death by his partner, Kenneth Halliwell, and in order to recreate the sound of a hammer hitting a skull on the stage, a member of crew would simultaneously smash a watermelon with a claw hammer to create the same sound effect. Pretty gruesome stuff, but it was effective. Nick Bromley was backstage one night, listening to the play and waiting for the watermelon cue. It was difficult to get the timing right, and there was tension every night waiting to see if the actions on stage would be matched by the sound effects, and this night it worked beautifully. As they silently celebrated their audio triumph, they realised that something was happening in their backstage room. Each time a hammer blow rained down on the stage, the wash basin that had sat still in the sink the whole performance shook violently. With each blow, the basin shook and the pipes below it began to gurgle as though a thick liquid was flowing through them. Nick and his colleagues stood in horror, the onstage audio triumph forgotten, listening to the thumps, watching the basin shake and the gurgle that sounded sick and guttural like the blood spurting from a crumpled skull. As the blows that rained down on the stage stopped, 
so too did the juddering of the basin and the gurgling of the pipes. The room was now silent, and without looking at each other, Nick and his colleague backed slowly and silently out of the room. And the mishaps continued. Props disappeared and reappeared in unlikely places. At points, the side of the stage was so cold that the stage managers were forced to wear hats and scarves and big coats. The mishap seemed to be relentless and followed the production from venue to venue. During one particular performance, Nick and the deputy stage manager were standing side stage during act two of the play. All was going well on stage and it had been a night of few mishaps. As a hush descended on the stage during a particular quiet moment, both Nick and the deputy stage manager heard a knock on a steel door close by. It was loud and clear, a distinct rapping of knuckles on cold steel. Nick was so sure that someone had knocked that he opened the door slowly and quietly in order to see who it was and have stern words about the stupidity of knocking on a door mid-performance. The door opened to a coal cellar which was completely empty, devoid of any human life, devoid of any life at all, empty except for a sign which read in all capitals, MIND YOUR HEAD. A few days later on set, a metal sheet came loose on set and crashed right down onto Nick's head. Now. The mishaps, missing props and strange incidents continued, but our story does not end when the run ends. Because a few years later, Nick had moved on from the tricky run of Prick Up Your Ears, but it would seem that whatever had plagued the run had not quite finished with him. Nick had always suspected that the bad luck that they had experienced on the run was linked to Joe Orton, that his spirit had somehow aligned itself with that play and he had made himself known by causing both minor inconveniences and serious near misses. In life, he was famous for his dark humour and his exploration of the darkness of man through comedy. So it would make sense that in his death, his way of communicating would be wrought with violence and threat. Nick was now working on a production of one of the plays that Joe Orton himself had written, a play called What the Butler Saw. Having not read the play, he decided to pop out and buy a second-hand copy in order to brush up on the plot. On the back cover was a picture of Joe Orton, semi-naked and lounging provocatively in his chair. Nick placed the book side down, but each time he returned to his office, the book was placed picture side up and Joe Orton's face with a suggestive look was watching him. The first few times Nick put it down to someone maybe popping in and having a look at the book. These things happen, after all. But as the night wore on, he began to get frustrated. During the second act, he started to get that prickly sensation as the sound system popped and hissed and emitted strange groans, a malfunction that they just hadn't heard before. These noises reminded him of that previous run where something had wreaked havoc. He returned to his office again to see Joe Orton's face now watching him and said aloud, 
Joe, you have to stop doing this. His voice firmer than his nerves. Later that evening, as the stage management team wrote a report of the night's run, Nick recounted the story of Prick Up Your Ears and his inexplicable feelings of unease about the sound system and the book being turned over again and again. Aloud, he said to his colleagues, it's just got to be bloody Joe, and deftly hit save on the report on his computer. The screen went black. Nick hit the return key a couple of times, perplexed as to what the issue was. The screen re-illuminated, and there, on the screen, in black and white, was a message somehow typed in the darkness. It wasn't me. So like I said, I came across that story in the book Stage Ghosts and Haunted Theatres by Nick Bromley. And it's genuinely a really good book, would highly recommend it. And that story gave me the chills. But before we start talking about that story, what is it about little children ghosts in theatres? There is simply no need. What are you doing there? I mean, really, how many children are dying in theatres? Not, not that many. I would, I would safely assume that not that many children are dying in theatres. And I just don't know where they're coming from. Why are you running around giggling and hiding in amongst the props and the costumes? Because let me tell you, because let me tell you, if I saw somebody dead or alive interfering with costumes or props, I'd be going, get your grubby undead hands off of my stuff. Or else I'm getting a priest in here and we're getting an exorcism done. The end. Is it a case that people are in, you know, the backstage area of theatres, which are often sort of little warrens, like windy little small corridors and it's always really dark and, you know, they're quite creepy places. So are they seeing things and them thinking, oh God, was that, was that, a, was that a small child or they're hearing things and thinking it was a small child? Because I don't really understand why there are so many theatres that are haunted by small children, genuinely. I understand as somebody who is, you know, a nice nicely skeptical I'm uh, open I'm open to anything but I'm pretty skeptical at the same time I actually I I would understand why directors and theatre owners would come back and haunt their theatre or there'd be some sort of like residual haunting or whatever I understand why that would happen because often these people gave their life to the theatre and it was the the love of their life and it meant the world to them and then suddenly you're taken away from that world are are you going to want to come back in and check on things or is the routine that you had when you were alive going to be replaying in your death like maybe I'd kind of believe that and I wanted to include the story about Mrs Ellen Elizabeth Nye Chart because it is a Brighton based story and Brighton has a very important place in my heart but also it is a story that I thought good on you as a woman in that time period, she took over theatre, got good theatre in, did all these really innovative things and also opened up the theatre to less fortunate people in society, opened up theatre to people who were living in the workhouses to give them the opportunity to go to theatre. Like, is that going to kind of give you food, give you, you know, shelter, whatever? No, it's not. But it does give you a cultural experience that takes you away from life for a period of time. And I just loved 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 her story I thought it was great and I loved the dedication to her that is in the foyer but in saying that with that lovely story we need to talk about 
the main event of this episode, which is the story of Joe Orton. I did not know this story. I know the play, What the Butler Saw. I'm not a fan of it, but did not know this story. And it's a really interesting read. Um, I don't know if in calling it an interesting read is appropriate. It's an interesting case maybe to read about. So Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell were in a relationship and Kenneth Halliwell murdered Joe Orton with a hammer and then went on to take his own life and said in his suicide letter that the reason why he did it would be in Joe Orton's diary. And then Joe Orton's diary, I think, was later published. It's really, really dark. So obviously trigger warnings, you know, you've got murder, you've got uh, paedophilia in there. Like it's a dark story, but this isn't obviously a true crime podcast, but I know there are a lot of, there's a lot of crossover and there might be true crime listeners who are interested in the theatre world and also want to read about a case like this. And it's, it's yeah, I was surprised that I knew nothing about it. Like, is this possible that Joe Orton haunted a play that was about the end of his life? Is that a good enough reason to haunt somebody? Absolutely, yes. I would be haunting people who were making a play about my death, for sure. And like I said, the family and friends of... Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell were consulted the entire way through the process. So I didn't see the play, but I'd like to assume the play then is appropriate and also respectful. I don't know how I feel about this story. It really gave me chills. That last sentence that this message was typed on the computer, it wasn't me. And I do think fundamentally that things go wrong on set. Things go wrong all the time. Things go wrong on stage. And because everything is about human responsibility when you're putting on a play, people don't like to take that responsibility sometimes. So I wonder if it's sometimes easier to be like, oh, you know, it's haunted or the play is cursed. Not that somebody, a human, didn't do their job properly. That sounds like I'm being really critical, but I don't mean it like that. I just mean that sometimes it's easier to blame external forces than go, oh shit, actually I didn't do that properly and I'm going to get absolutely roasted when people find out that I didn't do my job properly. But it's that last bit of, Joe, you have to stop doing this. And then the screen saying, it wasn't me. That bit is weird. And the bit with the mind your head plaque, I know it can seem really innocuous and it's like putting patterns together where maybe patterns don't exist. But I found it very strange. I found that whole story a bit unsettling, to be honest. And I mean, we've asked the question time and time again. What is it about theatres that make them so haunted? And I remember back in, I think it's episode five, where I first spoke about haunted theatres. My friend Heidi said, you know, a lot of what happens on stage is full of emotionality. That There's so much emotions going on that maybe that's why theatres are always said to be haunted because they're just places of huge emotion whether they're acted or whether they're actors that are tapping into some sort of emotion or audience members that are feeling those things along with you like are these big emotional spaces being created that allow for these hauntings to happen I don't know is Macbeth cursed I'm going to say no probably not I've said Macbeth about 400 times more thousands probably in the last week in a venue And nothing that I know of went terribly wrong, so I don't think it is cursed. And just to say, um, before I finish up, I am aware that this episode is coming out late. Um, As I said, I had a really crazy week. I had a really fun week producing a show, but I've never experienced 
anything like it it was my first time doing it and I foolishly thought that I would be able to get an episode written and out and on time as normal so hence why this episode is slightly shorter and a little bit later because everything's just been upside down and crazy um I want to also say a very massive thank you to the listeners who traveled to see Macbeth I did not expect that to happen so massive thank you to Sarah and Lou in particular hello and anybody else who was a listener who took the opportunity to come and see Macbeth I'm not great when people recognize me I get a bit I get a bit overwhelmed and I don't quite know what to do with myself because I don't I don't ever expect it I don't ever expect people to know who I am or come up and speak to me so when it does happen I, I tend to get a bit I get a bit shell-shocked and and I don't make I don't make it easy for people I think so thank you to the people who came up and spoke to me and were really everybody was really lovely and and it was just amazing that people made the effort to come and see the show and I loved 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 meeting you guys um and you know if you were there you would have seen the lovely Greg who does the music for the podcast also did the music for the show and you would have seen Sinead from the Poisoner's Cabinet Nick from the Poisoner's Cabinet built the crates Sinead played Lady Macbeth Dave Keane who always gets a mention on the podcast played Macbeth so there was loads of people loads of podcast related people knocking around and uh, yeah thank you it it meant the absolute world to me that people showed up and I'm going to stop talking about it now and the show is over I need to move on I need to get over myself because I'm like the ghost haunting the production so I need to move on thank you so much for listening to today's episode if you have a story that you would like to share you can send it to Podcast at gmail.com if you want to check out the website you can do so at reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com if you are desperate for more content you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories where for five dollars a month or two dollars a month you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free and on that note i shall see you next time